Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Writers have the power to inspire us, to provoke us, to help us understand the world we live in. Today we talk to two writers who've been recognized by the 2021 Connecticut Book Awards. Coming up, we hear from poet and nurse Courtney Davis. Her collection of poetry is called I Hear Their Voices Singing. First, joining us is New Haven resident Tochi Onyabuchi. He's the author of several books ranging from young adult science fiction to literary nonfiction. Riot Baby is his latest award-winning book and his first foray into adult fiction. Tochi joins us from Zoom. Tochi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And for listeners who are fans of Tochi, who love sci-fi and fantasy, you can join us as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page and find us on Twitter at Where We Live. So Tochi, we're super excited to have you on the show today. And I mentioned that you've written several books and uh, many (laughs) are uh, noted for uh, impressive awards like the Hugo, the Nebula, the Locus. Congratulations. Thank you so, so, so very much. It still doesn't feel real. And I described you as a writer in the intro, but you're also a civil rights lawyer. You're a comic book writer for Marvel. You went to Yale for your undergrad. You have an MFA from Tisch. You have a JD from Columbia, a master's in global economic law from the Paris Institute of Political Studies. Your mama must be proud. I'm just Nigerian. That's really (laughs) what it boils down to. So tell me about uh, Riot Baby. Again, this was a 2021 Connecticut Book Awards fiction finalist. It centers on the story of Kev and Ella, who are siblings wrestling with some big issues that we continue to see in America today, mass incarceration, police violence. But you have an interesting spin on what we have in reality and the stories of Kev and Ella. So can you talk about this story and, and how it came to be? Certainly. I so, you know, coming up as as a as a young Padawan, as a baby writer, <laughs> I uh basically lived in the sandbox of science fiction and fantasy. That's where I learned character development, that's where I learned pacing, that's basically where I learned how to tell a story. So that was always the lens through which I was going to see the world and process it through my writing. And Riot Baby came about I'd say tail end of 2015 going into 2016. Um, And at the time, there was this spate of videographic evidence of officer-involved killings of Black Americans. And uh, there was this sort of routine about it, this very sort of obscene routine where, you know, the, the, the event would happen and then sometime later the video footage of it would leak and often through social media. And this was before I think a lot of protections got put into place with regards to things like autoplay. So you didn't even have a warning before the video 
of the last moments in the life of this person would start playing on your Twitter timeline or your Facebook newsfeed. And this was happening over and over and over again. We saw it with Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, um, Michael Brown, etc. And I remember feeling at that time this overwhelming sense of hopelessness and anger. And writing is the way that I deal with feelings, <laughs> but it's also the way in which I organize my universe, the way in which I, I seek answers, but also you know find my way through various questions. And one of those questions I had was, you know, what would what would it look like if somebody decided to just burn down the police state? What does that even mean? And the answer to that question came in the form of Ella um, and her younger brother, Kev. And so going into 2016, I was writing this, this story, this novella, and it very much started out as uh, Kev's story, Ella sort of paying witness. And in 2018, I met my incredible Galaxy Brain editor, Roshi Chen at Tor.com Publishing. Uh, she bought the book, and it was through her editing that... I started to find more of Ella, Ella's voice, Ella's experiences, and Ella soon became, and rightfully so, the driving force of the story. And, you know, I have to give my, I have to, you know, tip my hat to Roshi. This book would not be what it, what it is without her stewardship, without her um, daring, and without her pushing me to really go to places that I was hesitant to go at first. Mm -hmm. These siblings have superpowers, and so as you're reading uh, Riot Baby, you know, it was hard for me to put it down because I, I knew that it was building, right? Something big was going to happen. And so can you talk a little bit, um, and this might be weird for some listeners who haven't read the book Riot Baby, they should definitely pick it up. It's a great novella. But when you talk, when you think about the ending, um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, was this catharsis either for you or even for the reader as you were writing? Absolute catharsis. Um, when I first wrote it, I wrote it um, very much for myself. Uh, it was a way of dealing with certain things, of expelling certain feelings. Uh, it was exorcism in a sort of way. And I'd seen nothing like it, you know, being published either, you know, within the genre or within the, the larger literary world. So I didn't have any illusions about whether or not it would actually be published or whether or not I, I would be able to sell it to a publisher. Um, but uh, Roshi took a chance on it. And one of the things getting towards the end of the story that I wanted to do was I wanted to um, implicate the reader. I wanted to make them really complicit in this story. And that's a big part of why the story ends where it does. And why the last word of the book is the last word of the book. I know that each reader will bring their own interpretation to that. Uh, it, will, it will generate a different picture in every reader's head. And I want them, after they finish the book, to interrogate that picture. What does that thing that they're imagining uh, say about how they've you know, consumed everything that's come before with regards to this story. You mentioned what was going on uh, inside of you uh, when you were first writing Riot Baby. I understand this book was published six months before the murder of George Floyd and all of the protests that followed. And so you mentioned earlier uh, the police state and all the conversations that came out of uh, this latest uh, murder that was uh, caught 
uh, buy a, a video, uh, buy someone's cell phone, uh, broadcast to so many. Uh, and there were questions of, you know, does this mean we should defund the police? What does this mean exactly for our community? And so, you know, when you think about the, the, what people are taking away from this book uh, in this moment that we're in now, uh, Tochi, I'm just wondering if you could talk about um, what it means to think about this book, um, given where we are today. Yeah, last summer was was weird, um, in part because while it it is heartening, I imagine, for an author to you know, have increased attention brought to their book and the attendant boost in sales. I mean, the fact that Riot Baby was looked as a book of moment, mm -hmm. given the events that were happening, was a bit dispiriting because one of the points of the book is the interminability of everything that we had been seeing. One of my very first political memories, really, as a kid was uh, the Rodney King beating. And the subsequent, uh, you know, acquittal of the officers who were involved in that and then the L.A. uprising that happened very soon after. And as a kid, I didn't quite know what I was seeing or, or, or I didn't quite have the tools to process it or to contextualize it. Um, but going into 2015, 2016, all of a sudden this connection had been made. This thing had been happening over and over and over again. And we thought the paradigm would shift once, you know, we we had gathered, you know, irrefutable evidence of the heinous act, but all it really did was, was reinforce the obscenity of the process of what we were witnessing with regards to the consequences or lack thereof being levied against the, the perpetrators. So, you know, it was interesting looking at Riot Baby in the context of, of last summer, in part because science fiction is always sort of weighted with the expectation of um, prediction. Um, and, you know, rightly or wrongly so, people will look at science fiction books and be like, hey, William Gibson predicted the Internet. <laughs> and really, every piece of speculative fiction is really about our present. And Riot Baby was about the present that I was that I was writing within. And if it all of a sudden is relevant, you know, six months after it's being published, you know, five years after it's being first written, uh, two years after it was sold, um, that speaks more to the state of the world than to anything within the book itself. You're hearing Tochi Onyabuchi here on Where We Live, author of Riot Baby. It's his latest award-winning book. It was a finalist in the 2021 Connecticut Book Awards. And so everything that you've just discussed, that pushes against uh, what some reviewers called a dystopian novella. <laughs> yes, that, I mean, that's been a very interesting um, adjective applied to the work and I think is illustrative of the idea that you know, somebody's dystopia is another person's reality. Um, I think, you know, a, a prime example of this would be if you look at the the sort of surveillance state that has um, sort of appeared or manifested itself in the lives of so many Americans, you know, it can feel new and weird and very Black Mirror-ish, you know, for a lot of people. But you look, you ask the the Muslim American community uh, in the aftermath of 9-11, uh, whether or not any of this is familiar to them, and the answer may be a resounding yes. And so the, there's this idea that the future is always tested on the marginalized first. And that was another point that I wanted to make with this book. Whenever I see video footage of a Boston Dynamics robot doing backflips, um, 
the very first thought in my head isn't, oh, this is going to be such a terrific um, medicine delivery vehicle or oh, this will be able to bring food and supplies to places that that, you know, humans can't necessarily get to. My very first thought is, how is the how are the police going to use this against us? How is the military going to use this against us? And that, I think, is such an incredible indictment of the society that's been built, where you can look at this technological innovation and your immediate thought is, okay, how how will this be utilized as a tool of oppression against me? And that's simply the reality for so many Americans. And readers of Riot Baby uh, see that in uh, the microchip trackers that are put in the thumbs of the parolees in the book. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, again, I was just writing out of the present. Uh, you know, what if what if ankle monitors were inside your body as opposed to an external, an external item? Then um, it's, it's very much that, you know, incarceration doesn't end after you leave prison or after you leave jail. Um, it's very much a continuous thing. It follows you oftentimes for the rest of your life um, with limited job prospects, the very the, the various ways in which your your life and your livelihood are constricted as a result of your record um it's not a one and done thing it it continues um and it sort of colonizes so much of your experience dictating how you are able or unable to move through the world um thereafter Again, you can join us uh, if you've read Riot Baby by Tochi Onyabuchi. He's a New Haven author, the number 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I'm wondering if you could read uh, a scene from the book, uh, Tochi. Uh, We talked about Ella's uh, powers, and in the beginning, um, there's this really uh, wonderful scene uh, with uh, a pastor. Can Can you read that for us? Certainly. Good morning, Junior Church. As tall as Brother Harvey is, his suit always seems too big for him. Too many buttons. But it never falls off, no matter how much Ella and Kiana and Johnny giggle at him. None of the helpers down here in the church basement wear the white gloves the ushers upstairs in the grown-up service wear, so Ella can sometimes see the tattoos on their hands. Brother Harvey moves back and forth in the little row of colored light thrown there by the stained glass windows with orchids etched into them. How many of you pray? He asks in his too big voice. He sounds like God. Ella raises her hand. How many of you pray every day? She puts her hand down. John A. keeps hers up, but Ella knows she's lying. You don't pray every day. She hisses. John A. cuts her eyes at her for a second, but keeps her hand up. How many of you do things that are wrong? Ella remembers that time she lied about putting her clothes in the wash and instead stuffed them into the closet she was supposed to hide in whenever bangers congregated in the alley behind the house. And she puts her hand up. God says, Brother Harvey booms, if you do things wrong and come to me, I'll forgive you. He walks over to Kaylin, the little boy three down from Ella with suspenders and a clip-on tie. Brother Harvey's hand rises like he's going to hit him. If I hit Kaylin here, what is he supposed to do? Forgive you, all the kids shout, except Ella. That means Kaylin's not supposed to hit me back, right? 
Ella wonders what she would do if Brother Harvey hit Kaylin with that too big hand of his. Now, I'm not saying Kaylin shouldn't defend himself. He puts his hand to Kaylin's head, cups it. Kaylin, you say, Brother Harvey, I will defend myself, and then at an appropriate time, I will forgive you, and I will do both of these things vigorously. The air starts to change the same way it does whenever Ella catches herself daydreaming, imagining, and she sees an older Kalen filled out an old man working in a hospital as an orderly, and all his patients are old, way older than him, and over and over the old patients, when they get slow and know it's not going to be too long now, ask him to sit with them. No bang, no blue bandana, no pool of blood on the sidewalk. Reflexively, she grips the tissues in the pocket of her frilly dress. She's up in the front, and a nosebleed now would embarrass her in front of everybody. But it never comes. And she lets go of the tissues, and pretty soon they're singing. Brother Harvey says a prayer for all of them, anointing them. Then he sends them back out to their parents or grandparents or people who act like their parents because they need to. Ella's so tiny that when the ladies crowd around her, their big hats come together like pink flower tops to hide her from the sun. Mm. And so those powers that she starts to realize she has uh, feel like a curse as she's younger, but then she grows into them more. But, you know, this idea that she's able to see into the future throughout Riot Baby, more of that futures of people ending in tragedy? Yes. No, I it, that I think was was one of the ways in which you know, her power is very much a curse and also a statement on where she lives and where she's growing up. Um, all these futures are so many of these futures that she sees or almost that she's, she's ambushed by all these visions. Um, you know, they end in tragedy and, and that is so incredibly unfortunate for a, a child to constantly be seeing it's traumatizing. Um, and there's no warning for these things. And, you know, that for me was a way of using speculative fiction or the, the tools that speculative fiction offers to make that sort of statement about the environment that she's living in, rather than sort of right through exposition. Oh, this is where she lives. This is the, the murder rate, this, that, and the third, you know, statistic. Um, this was a way of making it visceral. Um, and that, I think, is one of the, the reasons why speculative fiction was so attractive to me as a, as a vehicle for this story. That scene that you read is before her brother uh, Kev is born. We're going to learn more about uh, Kev in Riot Baby, written by Tochi Onyabuchi. Here with us today on Where We Live, we'll be back after a short break. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. 
Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Tochi Onyabuchi told us he started writing Riot Baby in 2015 when the news and social media broadcast over and over the deaths of black men and women by police. Some white America reacted with shock, but Tochi says he and so many other black Americans reacted with weariness. Would anything change? And would anyone be held accountable? That anger is the through line in Tochi's award-winning novella, Riot Baby. The New Haven author joins us today. His book was a fiction finalist in the 2021 Connecticut Book Awards. Uh, Tochi, your book also talks about um, or focuses on mass incarceration. I understand that you wrote this drawing on your experience as a lawyer. Can you talk about that? Certainly. So it Getting involved in the issue of mass incarceration was probably one of the biggest reasons why I can never say I regretted going to law school um, or why the, you know, the the sticker price was ultimately in the end worth it, um, because it did change my life. Um, I uh, first did a, you know, what was called a, a human rights internship in the West Bank, where I was working with uh, an organization that provided relief and representation for Palestinian Arab detainees. And this was the summer between my first and second year of law school. And so much of what I learned there, I ended up taking with me back to the States when I returned for the fall of my second year of law school. Um, one of the one of the very interesting things that was happening uh, that same summer that I was in that I was in Ramallah was that there was a mass hunger strike going on uh, throughout prisons in California. And one of my tasks was to find ways to build solidarity between these two populations an ocean apart. And so coming back to the States, all of a sudden I had this new framework that I hadn't really thought about before in terms of thinking about the social cost and the social function of incarceration. Prior to this, you know, I'd only ever experienced it through personal touches, people I I knew or people I loved who'd been passed through the system. Um, But now I started to see it very much more as systemic. I participated in the mass incarceration clinic uh, in law school. I was privileged to work on, on, you know, uh, several cases, one of which involved uh, traveling to Rikers to collect uh, testimony among prisoners for for a suit that was being put together. That was my first extended contact with the facility. We would take the bus over, several buses actually, um, you know, go through security in the facility and talk to these people. And that, I think, began, you know, what will likely be a lifelong fascination with incarceration. And I realized very early on that this was something that I wanted to work with after law school. And so I joined the 
New York State Attorney General's office upon graduation, working with their Civil Rights Bureau. Um, among the, the many sort of realms of our, our ambit was incarceration, particularly of juveniles um, in the New York State system and in the county jail system. And then after that, I worked with the Legal Aid Society's Parole Revocation Defense Unit. And in all of these situations, I'm encountering the people that reside in these facilities. And one of the things that I'm noticing is just how much humanity happens in these places. There's the stereotype, I believe, in many ways fueled by the, the, the media that we consume, fiction and nonfiction, that there's nothing but animality in these facilities, that this is where you go to lose your humanity. This is where you get sent um, when you're no longer you know, of any use to society or deserving of being here amongst the humans, so to speak. But in these places, there were people who did book clubs, people who gardened, um, people who, you know, were trying to set themselves up to go back to school when they got out. People who were doing so many of the things that people on the outside were doing. Only they had, you know, all these incredible constraints and they were doing it in maybe one of the most stressful environments that you could conceivably put a person in, um, at least in the way that American society is currently configured. And again, writing is how I organize the universe. It's how I process experiences. And so I knew as I'm going through all these things and observing all these things that I have to write about this. I have to. I don't necessarily know what form it'll take. And, you know, at one point I contemplated doing this, you know, ponderous, multi-generational epic tome about crime and punishment. But, you know, I, I think the Russians kind of beat me to it. <laughs> um, so uh, Riot Baby ended up being the form in which this took. I knew this was going to be a book that dealt with um, mass incarceration. I knew I wanted it to be an experience um, that I put the reader through as opposed to something that they're observing, which is why Kev's perspective is first person as opposed mm -hmm. to Ella's third. Um, and a big part of why, you know, the, the section in Rikers is the largest section in the entire book. Tell us more about Kev. Uh, he is uh, someone who ends up becoming incarcerated uh, in the book. And you mentioned uh, these scenes at Rikers where uh, also I think Ella visits him uh, and they have this connection. Can you talk about that and how you experimented with them? Certainly. I mean, I've I've seen Kev on street corners, you know, that that uh, that bodega that's mentioned on the corner of 145th and St. Nicholas is a real actual bodega that I would go to for bacon, egg and cheese sandwiches on my way to the attorney general's office um, every morning. And, you know, there's a certain, I think, impenetrability um, that I think is is attached to a lot of these young men where you know, people don't necessarily feel like they have access to their emotions and they don't necessarily feel like they may have access to their emotions, to what's going on inside of them. You know, the ability to decipher their own inner machinery or at least to articulate, you know, whatever they might find there. And I wanted to jump inside that. What does it look like on the inside for somebody like this? You know, somebody on the corner who you may already have these preconceived notions about how does somebody get there? What happens to them afterwards? How do they change? And that was something that I was really interested in exploring with Kev. I wanted to write a character like that very much from the inside out. And I also wanted to write 
a character who in many ways is constrained by, you know, what in, in ancient times might be perceived as prophecy. Um, incarceration is very much an inevitability or, or seems very much an inevitability in certain communities. It's, you know, in, in many ways going to, to college or, you know, reaching puberty. It's a thing that happens. It's a thermodynamic principle. Um, and what does it look like to grow up in a place where that's just part of your assumed reality, where there's almost nothing you can do about it? It's meteorological. You know, it's a storm that sweeps through your community periodically. Um, and that was something that I think Kev provided an opportunity for me to explore. You talked about experimenting uh, while you were writing this, uh, Ella in third person, Kev in first person. But I wanted you to talk more about um, the prose in Riot Baby. I understand for you it's almost spiritual, right? Like when you're writing, you're writing with feeling and the mechanics come later. Absolutely. It's I'm I'm super weird about <laughs> prose. I and and weird in that I geek out about it. Um it's not necessarily a a you know technical you know incredible attention to detail type of thing. I don't necessarily treat my prose as a you know Patek Philippe watch. I'm very much guided by intuition, by the music of it, by the rhythm of it. Uh, that in many ways dictates where I put my semicolons, whether I use an M dash, you know, how I can have sentences that are, you know, strung together of, you know, half a dozen subjunctive clauses. Uh, I think, it, it, you know, one of the, one of the big sort of foundational texts for me prose wise was Absalom Absalom by William Faulkner. And I remember reading that, um, almost a decade ago and seeing this two page long sentence, and I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> um, in many ways, that book and others like it really blew open the world for me with regards to the possibilities of prose. It didn't necessarily, a sentence doesn't necessarily have to be a thing that only communicates information. You know, it can be a thing that lives and breathes. It can be a thing that forces you to like catch your breath at the end of it. And when I'm in the process of putting all of that together, there's this sort of ego death that happens. And oftentimes with regards to writing, that can be associated with, you know, the very fact of storytelling, right? Coming up with characters, living in the world of these characters, moving with them through this space. And that happens to me, certainly, but, you know, just the prose, like getting to play with sentences, getting to dig into them, um, getting to let them take me places where I've never been before, getting them to, to, you know, articulate a feeling that I'd never been able to articulate before. It's almost a sort of, it, it feels like I'm touching something bigger than myself. Um, it's, it's weird. There's a sense of enlightenment that comes when you're able to, you know, find just the perfect button at the end of a paragraph. Um, or, you know, articulate a previously unarticulated feeling or sensation or emotion, something that feels just right. It really does feel, you know, almost like, like, you know, and then this may sound a little bit dramatic, but it, 
oftentimes does feel like communion with the divine. Just one of my favorite movies of all time is Chariots of Fire. And one of the characters is a Scottish missionary named uh, Eric Little, who's training for the Olympics. And uh, there's one part in which he's doing his training and he's supposed to be taking over for the family mission in China. And that's very much what his sister is focused on getting him to do. And so she worries that he's devoted too much time to his training. And, you know, he takes her aside one day um, and he tells her, you know, Jenny, I know God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his presence. And I heard that as a kid and I was like, that's it. Like, that's the tweet. <laughs> that's that's how I feel about writing. You're hearing Tochi Onyabuchi here on Where We Live as we talk about Riot Baby, a 2021 Connecticut Book Awards uh, finalist. You know, for readers who pick up Riot Baby, uh, New Haven shows up uh, in this <laughs> novella uh, as Ella's escape and her training grounds. Is this the first time you've uh, incorporated Connecticut in your books? And uh, why? Why do that? Certainly. It, I mean, the during the the crafting of, of Riot Baby, I was uh, moving from New York back to Connecticut. And whenever I think of New York now, I think of it as a place of extended exile. Um, Connecticut <laughs> is home. You know, Connecticut's where I was raised. It's where I've spent the majority of my life. It's where my, my family is. It's often a place that, a, a place where the air is even easier to breathe. And you know, I wanted to have that for a character, particularly a character that goes through so much trauma, just constantly. I wanted her to have at least some sanctuary. And it made sense for me, just given the geography of the story as well, um, to have that, uh, to have New Haven be her sort of base of operations or headquarters, so to speak. And, you know, I, I, I have another book coming out in, in January of 2022 titled Goliath, which takes place entirely in New Haven. Um, and so it's been, it's been an interesting uh, process growing into the type of writer that can write about home and home where I live, not somewhere where I've studied abroad or somewhere where I've worked. Um, for, you know, I imagine quite a few writers, that's the type of thing that comes naturally. But for me, it, it was a learned skill for, for a very long time. I was too close to home to be able to write about it. Um, and now I think I've finally gotten to the place where I'm more comfortable, you know, giving that to my characters. Mm. I'm wondering, we've, we've heard about Ella and Kev. I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about Mama, who played such a central role in Riot Baby. Um, a healing force. Um, can you talk about that, um, her character? And I have to say that scene in the book when Kev tells Ella he wished he talked to Mama more really broke me. It was very emotional. Can you talk about that scene and how you wrote it? Absolutely. I mean, you know, all the all the characters in Riot Baby and in my books in, in general are, you know, more composites of real life people than, you know, specific analogs, uh, but the the character of Mama in Riot Baby was very much influenced by my own mother, um, who, you know, is a nurse and, you know, who, you know, very much raised her, her four kids sort of on her own and has in many ways endured life rather than experienced it. And you know, I love my mother more than anything in the entire world. And 
I remember there was very early on in the in the recession, she had she had lost her job. And I remember and she'd been a, a tax analyst prior to uh, becoming a nurse. And I remember feeling at the time this incredible sense of injustice because it was almost like, you know, world capital W, do whatever you want to me. Right. Like I can take it. I'll get through you know, do whatever you want to my contemporaries, whatever, but mom is off limits. Mm. You know, mom is, you know, you don't, you don't get to have her. And then to see her experience this thing, um, you know, this person who's the most important person in my life to see her experience this thing. um, It really, it really went to work on me. Um, And it showed me just how powerful that sensation could be. And so, you know, when I was thinking of a potential fulcrum for Ella, something that finally pushes her over the edge to adopt the mission that she adopts in the book, that made all the sense in the world, making Mama the fulcrum on which her progress sort of turns, on which Ella's progress sort of turns. And um, yeah, no, she 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 broke my heart. Oh my goodness. Yeah, <laughs> I like I'm, I'm getting almost incoherent with it, but it was very important too for, you know, the mama character to exist because it also allowed me the opportunity to write about how institutional racism um, and systemic oppression manifest themselves in the medical community as well. So this is a book um, that isn't just about the police state, isn't Mm -hmm. just about incarceration, but there's this idea that racism, that oppression is everywhere, that it's in the air you breathe, it's in every situation that you find yourself in. And what does it look like when it's when it's so when it's so overwhelming? When it's everywhere you look, um, what does it what does it look like? What does it feel like to live in that space? Um, so yeah, the, the mama character was instrumental for me. Before we run out of time, you touched on this earlier uh, in our conversation. But what do you want your readers to feel when they finish Riot Baby Tochi? Oh man. Um, I, you know, I want them to, I want them to feel like they just went through something. And I know that sounds super vague and, and kind of, you know, 30,000 feet in the air. Um, But I, you know, I want them to feel as though they've experienced something they've never experienced before coming out of a book. Um, I want them to question their assumptions. I want them to think about, in many ways, their own complicity in the situations that, the book mirrors in the outside world. I want to think about the role. I want them to think about um, their own role uh, in these things and whether or not they see themselves in any of the of the characters, uh, you know, whether Ella or Kev or whether part of the oppressor class. I want them to really interrogate their own place in the world. Mm. It's a pleasure to talk with you, Tochi Onyabuchi, again, a New Haven resident, award-winning author of Riot Baby. I think we've given our listeners a lot to think about, and if they haven't read Riot Baby, I'm sure they'll pick it up soon. Tochi, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. And Tochi's upcoming novel is Goliath, coming out next January. Coming up, we hear from another Connecticut Book Awards finalist, poet Courtney Davis. Stay with us.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking with Connecticut writers who've been recognized by the 2021 Connecticut Book Awards. Joining us now is this year's poetry finalist for I Hear Their Voices Singing. On Zoom, Courtney Davis, a nurse practitioner and award-winning poet, author of several books, her latest called Daughter. She's also the first poet laureate of Bethel, Connecticut. Courtney, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Lucy. I'm honored and pleased to be here. So I mentioned that you're a nurse practitioner, but tell me about your writing and and what you focus on. Well, I I have been writing poems since I was very young. Um, When I became a nurse, I never wrote about my nursing at all. My, My poetry life, my home life, and my nursing life were completely separate. And then one day I had a young patient die, a very uh, important patient to me. And I didn't know what to do with the emotions that I felt about her passing. So I wrote a little poem about her. And then I think in that, in that writing, I really realized what poetry could do for me as a writer, as a person, but also for the people and the patients that I write about. Um, I found that writing a poem about her honored her. It also helped me to let go and put down some of the emotions that I felt about her passing, but I didn't get rid of them. I kept them in that poem forever. I still have that poem many, many years later. So I realized that poetry can honor, it can hold on to, it can let go of. And I think that um, as a nurse, you know, the themes of caregiving are the themes of our human existence, our, you know, birth and death and suffering and healing and joy and love, um, all of those things, I think, can be contained in poetry. And for me, that was my path. And I think how I started writing, particularly how I started writing about my my work as a nurse. Mm. I understand that some of your poems also focus on your own experiences, one on your father's passing, and then one of your longer poems, Becoming the Patient, which is about what it was like for you to be the one that was being cared for. Could you read the first two sections of that poem for us, Courtney? I would. Um, This is something that happened to me uh, unexpectedly, resulting in a very long hospitalization. This is called Becoming the Patient. This is section one. In the hospital after the operation, when the clear tube that drained my stomach felt like fire in my throat and the intravenous pinched my skin, I saw like a waking up dream, a nurse leaning over me, her arms so close. All I could see were the blonde hairs and the glistening gold of the bracelet at her wrist. And in that second, I thanked God for the beauty of the bracelet and the arm that offered the scent of soap and for the silent tending all those nights when all I could see was the arm, that glittering gold. Even in the dark when drains were emptied and oxygen adjusted, it was that arm and that delicate strand that held me to my life. This is the second section. In the hospital, in the haze of could die, could get better, I came to understand gender, not in the way I'd always thought, male and female, the externals and the assumed, but in how it was sometimes the feminine my body sought 
and other times the masculine. How necessary both the tender, gentle sympathy and other times the strength and deference that lifted and held and did not let me fall. You're hearing Courtney Davis again, a nurse and award-winning poet, uh, reading Becoming the Patient. So I understand that you were in the hospital for almost a month. And even after you were discharged, you know, what it was like for you to reflect back on this time? When I first was discharged from the hospital, many people asked me if I was going to write about my experience. And I, I really, I didn't have the words to say what I had been through. It took me quite a long time to be able to process that. My, my immediate understanding was that I had learned more about caregiving, more about nursing by being a patient than I ever had learned in school or in even in all my times of tending other patients. And I, I think what I learned was that good caregiving involves being present in ways that are uniquely human, uniquely understanding, and that reach into the depth of our experiences. I, I just learned so much about what it meant to care for another human being. Uh, and I think that, that nursing really is a metaphor, if you will, since we're talking about poetry too, in how we care for others and how we fail to care for others. And there was so much that the nurses did for me in their presence, in their acceptance, in their understanding, and their accepting me as I was at the time. Uh, that I learned so much that I took away and, and hoped to, you know, use in my own work with others and also in, in my own poetry, you know, the ability to be present for the experiences of others. You know, nurses have had this role uh, with the people they care for uh, uh, forever, right? But when we think about yes. the pandemic and uh, how there was more attention on the role that uh, nurses and others played uh, to be at the bedside, to help somebody who was suffering, I think there was more of an awareness of that. Courtney, what do you think? Yes, I do. I think that the nurses who were involved in taking care of COVID patients were put in a situation that they had never anticipated. They were thrown into the, the depths and the heart, I think, of what it means to care for another person. I think that for me, poetry is a very bodily thing. I write often about the body and what it means to tend the body and the soul within it. And I think that tending COVID patients involved the nurses so much in tending them bodily, spiritually, emotionally, I, you know, I'm, I'm happily retired, I must say, and I do know nurses that are involved in tending COVID patients. I, I don't think that people truly understand the depth and the tragedy of what it is to be so ill and the bravery and the dedication of these nurses who are tending these patients. We just have a couple of minutes left, uh, Courtney. Uh, we're talking about I Hear Their Voices Singing, which is uh, your collection of poetry uh, acknowledged uh, and recognized by the Connecticut Book Awards. But you have another uh, book out called Daughter. Could you tell us about that briefly? Um, I will briefly. My most beloved daughter passed away in April from breast cancer. And one of the only ways that I could deal with that grief and that tragedy was to fall back into my habit of writing. And I, I looked back at poems that I had written about her since her childhood. 
and I wrote new poems during the 2020 pandemic lockdown. I wrote a poem every month about what it was to be here when I couldn't be with her where she lived in Kansas, uh, about her journey as a patient and about my journey as someone who was mourning uh, her illness. So that being a mother, being a nurse, um, being separated by this pandemic, I found that poetry could do, I think, what I wasn't able to do any other way. And that was to put down, as I said, in writing, to honor her, to put down my emotions, and to know that life and love are everlasting. Uh, so the book is really an elegy to her life and to what poetry can do to help us get by in our complicated and often uh, unhappy and often joyful lives. I'm so sorry to hear of her passing, but I thank you uh, for sharing a little bit of her story with us and for coming on the show to talk about your poetry, Courtney. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here, and I loved listening to the first section. Thank you. This is Courtney Davis, a nurse practitioner and award-winning poet. If you'd like to find her work, you can search Courtney without the U, Davis, and we'll make sure we link it on our website as well. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Uh, coming up tomorrow, we're going to be talking about bereavement in the U.S. It can be quite short with the expectation we make a quick return to work in normal life. But should we rethink how we process grief? That conversation tomorrow. <laughs>